0: and welcome to a brand new episode of game crimes it's been a minute nice to see you my name is jay i am one of your hosts i'm also joined here by my co-host mr game boy himself mike bachman how are you doing mike
1: it's me mr game boy a co-host is a generous (laughs) way to describe what i do um i don't know i i
0: think that um you have a lot to contribute that's not funny. I don't know how to, do, how
1: to make that into a punchline. I'm just being genuine. Stop! stop please just add a rim shot. <laughs> you have a lot to contribute.
0: Today is a solemn occasion. We would like to stiffen up our upper lip and, and, and fix our ties a little bit here because we are inducting our first ever entry into the Game Crime's Hero of Games series. Now, this is a ongoing series. I'd like to jump into every once in a while to celebrate some of the more iconoclastic and original game creators who made a lot of games that are interesting, uncelebrated, uncommercial, uh, yet still influential. We keep cycling back to the theme of. These large video game companies determining a lot of what games culture is, and history is no different. The games industry is a very, very, very competitive industry with a lot of money in it, multi-billions of dollars, and it's like a shark tank. It's brutal sometimes, especially with how it treats folks. Today we're going to be talking about a very original game creator, a developer by the name of Daniel Bunton-Berry as our first ever inductee. There's a lot of reasons why I think Miss Barry is worth talking about here, but there is one indelible fact of life that will always define her life and her work, and that's that she was a transgender woman. I find it's important when it comes to game history to really pay attention to folks who worked on the margins, and trans folks, in my experience as a trans person, often are in the margins of these multi-billion dollar industries. One thing we should get a out ahead of, Trigger warning, content warning wise, Danielle meets some really scary transphobia in her life. We're not we're going to try to go into it too deep here. But if you do have your own issues in your life, maybe some trauma, maybe some family dysfunction, this stuff could hurt. And uh, also a little disclaimer about our own gender and sexual identity. I think it's important to elevate queer history because I'm a queer person. I'm a trans person. I'm a non-binary person. And
1: history is very often whitewashed of queer people's stories. I am a cis cis white guy and have not uh, run up against, you know, much personal persecution because of that. Um, You know, I would say I would say, you know, I'm going to go so far as to say little to none. Um,
0: (laughs) This show is about telling stories about history and Daniel Buttonberry is an important figure in game history. If you're not familiar with her story, you're not alone. It's been hidden for most people. While I'm not the first queer person to try to tell her story, I really hope I won't be the last. With all that said, with all the disclaimers out of the way, let's actually have a warm, fun episode of Game Crimes where we get to celebrate the life and work of Danielle Bunton Berry. Biography. Danielle Bunbury was born in 1949 and spent her childhood deep in the south of the U.S., Missouri and Arkansas. Danielle grew up in a dysfunctional family. She says that outright. It's her words, not mine. Danielle was very clear about her childhood and her experiences with her family deeply influencing her game design. And if you are aware of her biography, you can see it in her work. Danielle didn't go to college for game design because there really wasn't a a son of a thing in the 1970s, but she did get a degree in industrial engineering and spent the next few years of her life doing city planning and engineering on a local government level, or as I like to call it, SimCity in real life. She made her first game in 1978, a game called Wheeler Dealers. Don't love the name, just gonna say. But... It's a really, really interesting game. She made it as a hobby in her spare time, just a hobbyist programmer. And that was kind of the base for a lot of games at the time. They were mostly a hobbyist act. This wasn't a big industry yet. Wheeler Dealers represent it. it's an important step forward for PC games at that time. It was priced at twice the average game cost, which I believe is $30 instead of the requisite 15 it was during an age when PC games were sold in Ziploc bags with photocopied manuals and them out of the trunks of the people's cars, and Wheeler Dealers had a full-fledged retail box, and it needed that extra box space because Danielle created a multi-input device for the Apple II that could be the first multi-tap in the history of home computing. I'm not familiar with any others, are you?
1: I, I, I'm not. Was it sold in stores? What's the purpose of a retail box?
0: The goal was to get it to sell in stores, like okay. the goal was to to put it next to toys um, and games and stuff like that, but it wasn't incredibly successful, and so she mostly sold it out of her car or by mail order, which is pretty normal at the time. You know, like your wizardries and stuff like that were all sold the same way.
1: It's, it's, a, it's important to sell games out of your car, because if you sell them into your car, then people have to come to your car to play it. And... <laughs> They got to know where you're parking at any given time. It's very inconvenient. Hey, Exhibit, I want you to install
0: a premier game museum experience inside of my (laughs) Cadillac, please.
1: Yo, dog, we heard you like Call of Duty. So now the entire Activision studio is in your third (laughs) row seating.
0: Wheeler Dealers was not successful commercially. It did not make money. She did not become a game designer. In fact, she kept on doing her engineering work and programming games in her free time. Pretty soon, she had another game that was called Cartels and Cutthroats, which is sort of like a business trading sim, a multiplayer game where you pretend to buy things and sell stocks and all that fun stuff, as well as a American football game called Computer Quarterback. Those are her two earliest games, games that she made with her friends, playtested by her family members. Computer Quarterback in particular, Mike, is extremely funny. It's like a text adventure football game. Okay. Where you're the quarterback and you're like doing text inputs to th- like
1: throw a ball. <laughs> it's, it's sounding very much like a football quap. It, <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, like, it's like
0: football zork. There's also an early work of hers that is interesting because it kind of predates the rest of her work. A stripped down war game, a really simple board game conversion. She called it Citron Masters. And she would go on to refine this idea throughout the rest of her career. And it was Citroen Masters that actually gained her a little bit of attention along with her other games, enough to get some outside programming work and start her own game studio. That studio was called Ozark Entertainment. And even though it was a full game studio, it was staffed by playtesters, family, and friends. I mean, we're talking exquisitely non-commercial in the deep heart of Arkansas. Yeah. Not exactly at the Tech Valley at the time. Or now. I don't know.
1: That's <laughs> going to say, at the time.
0: Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What's going on in Arkansas now, folks? Are you guys doing Bitcoin? Rice farms? So as her work starts reaching a bigger audience, i.e. Sh- her games sold and make money, Danielle was gathering a reputation as an innovator in software design. Her games are very board game-like. There's not a lot of dazzle, and there's a lot of time and attention invested in a handful of very spare mechanics. Numbers very much matter in her games, but you're not doing complex math equations. Arcade games were definitely designed for flashy, quick play with small runtimes. PC gaming at the time, especially uh, late 70s, early 80s, was like the Wild West. Compare that to Atari and Namco and, and all of the, what you have in the arcade sector, which are these like, big AAA games that are meant to just eat quarters and make a shitload of money. PC games were for weirdos. When you compare the arcade games to Danielle's games... Her games are very short, like arcade games, but there's a lot of randomization, which encourages multiple playthroughs. Every time you play the game, it's going to be a little different. A lot of PC games were short novels in the form of text adventures or very number crunchy wizardry style dungeon crawlers. They're what other people might call lonely games, games where you're by yourself doing a thing by yourself. Danielle's games highly prioritize social contact. You're not just a stockbroker making money. The rest of your family is too. And your shithead sister is making that face where she's going to stab you in the back next turn. So you have to look at her and the computer at the same time. I don't know if that's an experience you've shared, Mike. Yeah, but but like literally? Don't have a sister to be murdered by. I can't speak on it. One day. Ozark's software emulated the world around Danielle. There's no immersion in the way that modern developers talk about. You're not watching a pseudo film. You're not pretending to be in a digital world. You're performing, and you have a buzzer in your hand to add to that performance. This hard, plastic, physical reminder that you, in real life, are playing a video game. There's no lore to follow, and you should be wheeling and dealing in equal measures, back-slapping and back-stabbing. Nothing would crystallize this difference more than her next game. It's her most important game. But first, we have to take a trip. Mike, what do you know about Trip Hawkins?
1: That is the dance where the <laughs> girls ask the guys to go <laughs> stuff you can cut that joke because that was not great
0: that has to stay in that is so bad Drew <laughs> Watkins was the founder of a little game studio called ea electronic arts maybe you've heard of it
1: oh yeah it's
0: the game. Po- and ea remade the face of PC game publishing It might be funny to think of EA as the blood-curdling dinosaur right now, but it it was one point in time a scrappy upstart way back in 1982. It was almost the Criterion collection of PC games, if that's a reference that nerds and people who might be lonely could get. (laughs) Hawkins saw software developers as movie directors or avant-garde musicians or tortured artists and as a result made a lot of unique marketing moves to emphasize the creativity and craft work required to create game software. So developers had their photos on the back of the game box, you know, like they were Billy Joel or something. The games were presented with expressive fantasy artwork. You know, it was very much meant to be commercialized, but being art first for whatever the hell that means. It did mean something quite important for Danielle, because Trip saw her newest game, Mule, and he really wanted to publish that bad boy. Turns out he's going to end up publishing one of the most influential video games of all time. let's talk mule mule was inspired by a robert heinlein story about colonizing empty planets and it's vague it's it's not a one-to-one translation and mule itself is a difficult game to describe there's some city planning there's some stock market stuff it's part board game and also part rhythm game Players are tasked with colonizing an empty planet, trying to extract the natural resources with the help of a stubborn, unreliable robot called the Mule. Enterprising colonists are forced to pay attention to the needs of the colony as well as their own pathways to success. Adding this push and pull between individual success and the group's needs, the colony needs a minimum amount of every resource to just survive. And that means each player has to both contribute to the whole and try to profit at the same time. Mule is a fascinating multiplayer game now, but at the time there was nothing like it. Sure, multiplayer was a feature in some games, but nothing had the strategic complexity and organic play patterns like Mule. It's an endless digital board game made for multiplayer specifically. Now, I mean, we're going to get into a review of Mule a little later, but you and I recently checked this out and it feels like a modern game to me, just sitting and playing it.
1: Oh yeah, it it tore apart our friendship
0: i made several self-destructive decisions which you did not (laughs) step in front of me to prevent (laughs) and i hold you responsible for all of them
1: (laughs) and and i'll I'll take that responsibility
0: but i don't know i mean was your impression that it's aged quite poorly because i I keep feeling like it, it it ages well with time
1: oh yeah no i think that that aged really well i think it's one of those things though I had to be in the right mindset to come across it, because I think now mm-hmm. if it if it were something and we didn't play the NES version and we played uh, like a newer kind of reskinned version. Yes. If say I were to boot up, like be going through a ROM collection and I boot up the uh, NES version of Mule, I don't think I would have. I would play it very long we, by no fault of uh, of Mules, but just that there's no shortage of like really unapproachable spreadsheet like games and i think ah. that's the way it comes across at first yeah yeah um, yeah but it's 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 so much it's so much simpler on the surface than that that it, it really did, it really needed a little bit of a preface so that i knew to stick with it for more than 10 seconds that really touched on something for me Yeah, you
0: know, it it kind of speaks to the way that we explore old games and talk about old games it's a very individual experience right Like Mm -hmm. you're you're kind of just off on your own diving into something or you're watching someone play alone. A game like Mule would not catch your attention and say an NES ROM set without a group of people in front of you to play it that are all willing and able to spend 10 or 15 minutes to learn what's going on under the surface.
1: I think that's like uh, I think that's for a lot of games like games have a better shot at being well received when they're contemporary, when there's like a, a certain amount of like a certain amount of zeitgeist around it. Uh, mm-hmm. So that there's other people to say, "Hey, this is worth checking out." But when you go back into an old catalog, all those echoes have kind of died off for for the for the lesser known games. There's nothing to say, "Hey, this is worth checking out." Checking out, so you just kind of like you you judge every one of those books by their cover. Yes, um, and it's a hard thing to break.
0: That is a great way to put it, Mike. I have nothing to add. That is just fucking awesome. Uh,
1: <laughs> that's really good.
0: EA secured Ozark's. Mule for its launch slate of the first few official EA releases. The results were a mixed bag. Mule and another EA launch title, Pinball Construction Set, were lauded for their innovation, but didn't exactly sell maybe as much as they needed to. So EA ported that sucker, and it was originally designed for the Atari home console, but was eventually ported to PC, Commodore, Sharp X1, NES, Windows 7, Windows 10. It goes on forever. <laughs> a near-finished prototype for a Sega Genesis port is rumored to exist, but was shuttered due to disagreements between EA and Danielle over adding weapons to the game. This publishing strategy ensured that Mule was definitely well-known years after its otherwise soft release. It's a game that actually got more popular years after its release. It was released in 84, but you start seeing this like cult kind of spring up around it in 86, 87, 88. Mule would go on to be one of the most influential multiplayer games of all time. I looked up a list of developers who claim to have been inspired by Mule, and here are the games inspired by Mule as listed by those developers. Civilization, Herzog's Y, Shigeru Miyamoto's Pikmin. Of course, we all know and love StarCraft, Will Wright's Spore, and The Sims, which is actually dedicated to Danielle.
1: The inspiration for the DRM in Spore, though, bloodletting, <laughs> I'm pretty sure.
0: Mike, there's one thing about Danielle very much warms my heart. I'm going to read this quote to you. I think it's uh, it's great. I know from data sources other than sales numbers that Mule was as widely distributed as Seven Cities of Gold, which sold five times as many copies. It was during the day when players would say, have you heard about Mule? Do you want a copy of it? Ironically, all I have left of the game are a few protected copies that I don't know how to duplicate even for friends. I used to tell folks who bought my games that by the time EA got done with it all, I only got about two bucks a copy. So if they ever wanted to clear their conscience for pirating Mule, they could just send $2 straight to me. (laughs) (laughs) Boss shit.
1: Yeah, hell yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a very realistic view of how people share art and how they understand art, and hearing it that cogently spoken in like 1984 makes my brain spin. Ozark's software catalog grew for Mule, and their next release, Seven Cities of Gold, was Danielle's most successful game, and the only game of hers to really focus on a single player experience. Its troubled sequel, Heart of Africa, was hampered by design timelines and budgeting issues, oft bemoaned by Danny herself. The rest of the 80s and 90s featured Ozark innovating all over the place. Robot Rascals was a hybrid computer card game. Modem Wars popularized playing multiplayer games over a modem years before Doom. Command HQ adapted the popular board game Axis and Allies into an online multiplayer game. And Global Conquest was the first widely published game to feature four-player online play. That is like... I don't know. That's like five grand slams in a row from where I'm sitting. I mean, I know some of these aren't as well spoken of. They're not part of the canon anymore, but these are huge steps for where games are about to go.
1: Yeah, well, and I think we, we talked about this when we were playing Mule. Is It's it's so weird now when there's such a push for like everything to be multiplayer, yes. so whether it warrants it or not. It's weird to see that era um, have somebody like, want to push things towards multiplayer but for innovation it's just kind of a it's a it's a contrast in a lot of ways
0: yeah for sure i mean it's almost like her focus on multiplayer at the time is so commercially unsuccessful that she's being labeled as a a different type of of game developer when in reality modern multiplayer is a lot of these very simple ideas just kind of filtered through that content mill filter over and over and over again right Ozark's legacy is felt deep within the game industry, and you can trace your finger right through that timeline. There's a straight line from Modem Wars to Herzog's Y to Warcraft to Starcraft to Dota to League of Legends to Overwatch. Whew. And that's just her games. One of the most interesting things about Danielle is that she's one of the only early game developers from the, the 70s and 80s to extensively document her life and work on the web, Her contribution to the historical record of video games is so incredibly unique that we can't help but dive in. Hi, it's me, back to monologue. I have no idea if people like these, but I refuse to pay attention to metrics so you're gonna keep getting them anyway. When we're trying to talk about bigger, abstract conversations, I like to ground it with some real life stuff. It's the people that matter, not the games. Plus, I offered Mike the opportunity to monologue, and he just sent me a 15 second video of him shotgunning the liquid out of a hummingbird feeder. Why wouldn't we dedicate this episode to just one person and her work? This is game crimes after all, there's so many crimes get to custom firmware mugen labor violations and we'll get there oftentimes speaking truthfully about queer history is an act of crime and yeah you probably heard like some quotes around crime being a trans person in 2020 is not always a pleasant experience i am a trans person just in the united states i can be fired from my job for being trans lose my home for being trans and denied health care for being trans being alive feels like a crime, and that's in 2020. Danielle died in 1998, and I do earnestly believe that things are much better now. The history of my trans elders is often impossible read and harder to find. There's no big money in preserving queer art and knowledge, really. Archives and libraries and museums are scraping by every day, while their patron universities are putting up multi-million dollar profits and surpluses. What little money exists in these cash starved spaces is often a gift from a rich patron with very particular interests. But hey, we're grounding stuff in real-life examples, so let's take Danielle's papers. Their house is a special collection at a university whose name is relatively easy to find if you poke around on the internet. Never been there. But I read a piece by Whitney Powell titled Outside of the Folder at the Box the Archive where she describes these papers in detail. In these documents... Danielle's life story will feel painfully familiar to any trans person. Rewriting your will due to family unrest, negotiating with hospital staff in the middle of a crisis, joking about pronouns to avoid social awkwardness, it's all there. Those papers are archived under her dead name, the name she used prior to her transition. And even if a particularly well-intentioned librarian were to show her the respect of using the correct name, the rights and limitations set by Danielle's family prevent the librarian from doing so. In fact, these rights and limitations prevent Damielle from even being credited under her proper name in reissues of Mule. That's trans history for you. It exists, it's often hidden, and it affects us people too. Our culture's anxieties prevent every single one of us from greeting this insightful, challenging thinker with basic human dignity. EA's marketing campaign approach from her time with the company always sticks in my mind, you know? The formative and definitive works of your life as an artist. Granted around your name and face. I think about my own life in public libraries. It wasn't too long ago that I was smiling in photos used for marketing campaigns and newspaper articles. I first discovered Barry's name in my early teenage years. In a game magazine, of course. And reading her obituary was my first experience with trans people in any way, shape, or form that I knew of. I reread that obituary recently. Sure, there was the obligatory, did you know this trans person is trans? But the vast majority of that article consisted of quotes from famous game developers praising her intelligence, her ingenuity, and her passion for studying social relationships via games. This big gathering of otherwise PR-addled, brain-shocked game devs memorialized their dead colleague and friend in a way that leaves a deep impact on me. I distinctly remember reading her obituary as a kid multiple times. I was feeding. I had to play those games. I eventually found her writing online, and learned about her life from there. While Danielle was enthusiastically advocating for socially oriented gaming, she was also brutally honest about the slings and arrows of dealing with other people. When I read her words, I noticed her ability to speak about life as a trans woman in full honesty. For an audience of tech nerds and PR draculas unprepared to hear it, sometimes I wonder if that audience really has grown any more receptive. Even if things have gotten better. When I think about games, I relate to Danielle's perspective. After all, the goal of the show has not changed from episode one. Let me, um, dig through the tapes and wrangle up a clip here. This podcast, for all of its goals and intentions, is about getting you to play games. Hopefully with the people you love. I gotta admit I'm excited that, like, maybe, just maybe, sharing some of Danielle's story might bring a few people together. And if you're listening to me ramble after all of this... Then we were successful for at least 20 or 30 minutes. I think she might have liked that. philosophy time to peel back the layers and get a little academic we're going to turn mr gameboy into professor gameboy before the night's (laughs) over danielle Bunbury's impact on games is not limited to just the games in her videography as an early adopter of internet culture danielle's written work about games and her own life experiences in the game industry can be found online and was able to be found online as early as 1996 Her friends compiled this info and put it out on the web posthumously, and using the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine, you can still read her papers today. That's right, the Internet Archive is back. It's our only real public log of internet history, and without it, we'd all be fucked. Looking through these papers, we can really, really get into Danielle's headspace when it comes to game design, and her thoughts on game design are really, really insightful. A lot of the time, her writing is very structural. It's looking at the game as a whole and analyzing the systems contained within it. She really, really likes to talk about numbers being abstracted into concepts and concepts being abstracted into numbers. It's not a three. It's a power dynamic. It's not a five. It's a a negotiation. You can see the city planner spilling out onto her pages and you look into some of her interviews. I have a passage here from an interview with James Haig on dadgum.com. The interviewer asks, has game design advanced since the mid-1980s? She responds with, I think we have gotten better at doing interfaces that users can understand. That was a significant part of what I was aiming at and consider it one of my accomplishments with my early designs. However, I don't think much has been done on the actual content of games and their models. I resent the stranglehold the distribution channel has on design via their arbitrarily imposed genres and product categories. I don't believe a game like Seven Cities would be allowed today since it crosses too many boundaries to sit comfortably in one of their genres. Who would have dreamt what a kiss of death that concept would be to mainstream products because of genre hardening? Anyway, I still believe we're in the early days of this industry and have a lot to discover and invent. Literature, anthropology, and even dance have a good deal more to teach designers about human drive and ability than the technologies on either end of California, who knows silicon and celluloid and not much else. So let's peel back a little bit on that. They're essentially asking in the 90s, hey, what's changed since the 80s? And her response is mostly nothing. And we we are basically becoming over-commercialized. But that fields like literature and anthropology and dance have more to teach us than like computer systems oh yeah have you heard anyone talk about games that way or how does that you know how does that hit you in particular
1: no and it's it's kind of bizarre to me like i feel like i need to i need to ponder that more like the the idea that somebody using that using computers as their medium it hits me in the same way that like watching nickelodeon as a kid and having them have a commercial about how i should stop watching tv and go outside hit me (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, the comparison point I was going to use was the uh, what's that brand new RTX fifteen seventy hundred or whatever graphics card?
1: Uh, yeah, thirty eighty.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that big bad boy that that costs a car note. I think you can use it here as kind of the lens for what she's talking about. That does represent a huge step forward to some extent in the technological scope. You know how many flops you can flop. But she's saying that, you know, that technology is always going to change. And so there's always more to learn from looking outside of games rather than trying to make games fit within these really
1: narrow scopes. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm struggling to think right now of a game that's not emulating something outside of a game, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. It's yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, let's, let's use a good comparison here. Uh, Japanese RPGs, right? The, the Japanese RPGs that really, really, really stick with people are the ones that have this sort of like complex plots and layered characters and all that. Mm-hmm. I think she's saying that like, before we look at technology to try to push these genres and these ideas into different areas, look into how people have studied art and, and what people know about art, what people have known about history, and use that as the basis for future design.
1: Do you think that's happened to any degree?
0: I think it has, actually. I think, um, you know how there's this kind of like swirling cloud around there being an indie boom in the 2000s and 2010s? -hmm. I think that that is largely what you're seeing there are these older game styles, these older game genres impacted by different styles of visual presentation, narrative presentation. And because of the games all costing $10 and being available on Steam, you have this like infinite number of permutations on the same idea. So the ones that stand out are the ones that really have sort of a unique style, something to say. Hollow Knight is, I think, is a good example of a game that's very much not unique in any way, but the art style really stands out because it's a game that's mostly about its animation. Yeah. And so, like, the the joy and the attraction for people playing it is that the animation is pretty and that it doesn't really resemble anything else. And
1: Well, and I think, yeah, I think you kind of hit it really well with the whole indie game thing because... There is this trend in certain certain sectors there where indie games are using kind of like limited, limited technology. And, and sometimes sometimes even just like imposing rules on themselves for like the technology mm-hmm. they can use. Shovel Knight being a good example of that. Yeah, for sure. Where they they tried to limit. They allowed themselves a little bit of leeway on the color palette, but, you know, tried to um, stick to the confines of an NES game when designing that um, or uh, Pico 8 an entire engine built around that concept.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that bit about human drives and abilities are really interesting. And so I I pulled a few things that I thought um, really stood out to me in her games that reminded me of playing a board game. One thing that happens in a lot of Danielle's game is that there's a cooperative act of each player contributing to the shared understanding of how the game works. That's a very complicated way to say everybody learns the rules together and contributes to everybody else's understanding of the rules, as opposed to having a one-to-one interaction with a computer which instructs you as to what the rules are. I think a good example here would be the sense of exploration and sort of camaraderie in these giant MMO games, where there's no way to know every wrinkle of the game. And so you really do lean on people who know different elements of it, this class, this spell, this, et cetera. Board games are very much like that, and that's why you get house rules that pop up often. Another thing that pops up in her work a lot, there's a variance on what constitutes a win condition. There's no easy way to just win. You don't like decapitate the other guy like in Mortal Kombat. Players are rewarded for having some strategy, but can also fall prey to just random elements. They they hurt all players equally. Mule is a great example of that. There's just randomly weird and bad things that can happen to you. And learning to adjust to that is part of the game. So you're trying to win... But what winning looks like looks different every turn. Another thing that really stands out because you'll see peripherals and modems, etc. as a big part of her design history, the tactile feel of having something physical related to the game. Maybe some sort of sensory input. You're touching something, you're looking at something. A good example here would be her game Robot Rascals, which is literally unplayable without a physical deck of cards in front of you. You know, generally speaking, when we're talking about games that give us a tactile feel, we're probably talking about like a weird peripheral, right? Maybe a guitar controller or a, <laughs>
1: a Donkey <wheel>. Kong Bongos.
0: <laughs> Donkey Kong Bongos. But like in those products, the tactile feels <laughs> super important. Those bongos feel fucking good, buddy. Mm-hmm. And when you think about a board game, a board game has a lot of that tactile feel to it, right? You can imagine the way that a cardboard board game feels. If you're playing Monopoly, it's really hard to forget the way that those little weird pieces feel in your hands. They're kind of cold. There's all these little details that the human body registers and contribute to your brain's understanding as to how to parse a game, how to understand a game. So you see her over and over again saying, I have all these complex systems going on. But the player, you get to be reminded that it's all still a game and your way of interacting with all these complex systems is limited to the thing in your hands. A lot of games have extremely complicated systems going on underneath the surface that the player doesn't necessarily see. But a lot of games are, um, I and mean, this might be a modern design sensibility, a lot of games are all about letting you see all those, all those stats. I'm thinking of like how modern fighting games allow you to have frame data. Like, just when you're in a training session.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's not really what's going on in her games, right? Her games are about the people you're playing the game with. And because you have that physical element, you're going to have a more unique and memorable experience. Her games often required external peripherals, extra features for the computer. Wheelie Dealers required a multitap. Mule is one of the only Atari games to support the extra controller ports on the system. And it's one of the few NES games to support the multi-tap. Like I said earlier, Robot Rascals requires a real-life deck of cards. And a modem, which is very much not a mainstream thing to own in the late 80s, was required for most games that she made from 88 on. It's really hard to describe how unusual it would be to have a modem from home at that time. But it it's something that she saw as an emergent technology and jumped on, knowing that nerds we're into that sort of thing. We're looking to do neat things with it. How do you feel about games that do have that extra physical element to it? I mean, I'm the Donkey Kong Bongo is a great example, but like, I can think of so many games I quite like, but I have to carry like Steel Battalion is a great game, but I'm gonna have to carry that damn thing to every house I live in until I die.
1: I fucking love it, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, like those games stick with me like long, long past their past their prime because there are such unique experiences. Steel Battalion is like a, is is one of those where I've never owned that controller, but mm-hmm. I've always wanted one. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, but I've also always wanted it's a storage room. I got like Labo, Nintendo Labo stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cardboard um, one. When they, yeah. And I did the VR one and it was really cool. It was fun to build. It's 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 really neat but i've had it for about six months and it's like some pieces are starting to fall apart without it being used yeah well it's i mean it's made out of cardboard like it's not even just moving it around or trying to find a place to store it to the point where i toyed with like because i want to actually do these things and not just leave them in the box forever yeah 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 i toyed with with making like a mounting display on my wall like somebody would mount their gun collection so for like my (laughs) like for all my, like, Labo cardboard pieces so they can stay, like, up and out of harm's way for whenever I want to break those things out again.
0: It's that eternal push and pull of having to preserve the thing but actually wanting to use the damn thing that you're preserving.
1: Yeah, like, I think peripherals and things, they can, like, foster these really neat, unique experiences that'll stick with you for a long time, but they the other side of that coin where you have to store that shit.
0: And I think that's actually one of the reasons for the popularity of things like fighting game arcade sticks or, like, home arcade cabinets. People want that feeling. They want to touch it. They want to have their hands on the wood grain of the arcade cabinet. They want the button to feel just right when they press it. Not everybody is that particular, but people who do have that relationship with games have a very deep and intense relationship with their games. Take it from me, I have a lot of Sumitsu buttons laying around the house. (laughs) By giving a player an external tactile sensation to associate with her games, she's on a regular basis creating a relationship between her and the player where the game is pulling the player away from the computer screen. The player is over and over and over again reminded that those games are meant to be played with other people in real life. It's hard to describe because of our own idea of modern multiplayer games is so varied, but I think she was really approaching this similarly to something like poker or chess, but with a computer. Who you play those games with define the experience for you just as much as the game design itself. I think we've all played a really bad party game before. and felt kind of weird about it. So I'd like to finish this section on her design philosophy with a quote from her 1997 Game Developers Conference speech. For nearly all intents and purposes, the current crop of games, and even the next crop that I'm aware of, have simply taken standard computer game genres from the pre-online era and replaced the AI opponents with humans. If you're playing one of those games, your interaction with those humans is at the same level as it was with the AI ones. What we're experiencing now is just the fact that people make better opponents. They will do more interesting things than any algorithm. Those of us who have been pushing multiplayer games for years have known this part. It's just that this is such a tiny aspect of what having human playmates can mean. People can make you feel welcome and accepted. People can teach you and share with you. They can touch you emotionally. But in the current online games, they are nothing but a few pixels on the screen and an occasional stream of text. That is really that last line is fucking heartbreaking cuz she's describing Twitter.
1: <laughs> oh no. I know it's it's so it's so sad. Although I take issue with her saying a few pixels on the screen because <laughs> I game in 4K and that's a lot more pixels than I'm being given credit for.
0: Now we're going to link that biography back in. Remember right at the beginning where I said that Danielle grew up in a dysfunctional family? That Spectre followed her throughout her adult life. Danielle was largely estranged from her family after transition, although she continued on in her career as an influential designer and consultant. She writes openly and honestly on her website about her children disowning her after she transitions. Her family members threatening to murder her, and I wish there was a happier ending. But those family dysfunctions are echoing everywhere throughout the web throughout her history. It's damn near impossible to find any sort of historical info on Danielle that doesn't deadname her within the first five lines of HTML. Her family rejects her transition after death, refusing to allow her to be properly attributed. Universities and libraries that house her papers, her life's work, this incredible formative text of video game history, those universities and librarians are also forced to deadname her. Knowing all of this breaks my heart every time I read her work. It breaks my heart to have to read these quotes to you from her because it's so clear that there's this big element of her life in everything that she does. I'm going to read this quote here. It's very brief from the same interview as I mentioned before on Dadgum. Interviewer, what got you interested in writing games? Danielle. After years of therapy, I think I know the answer to this. When I was a kid the only time my family spent together that wasn't totally dysfunctional was when we were playing games consequently i believe games are a wonderful way to socialize perhaps the greatest insight into game design comes not from her words or her writing but from her actions danielle put herself out into the world in a very courageous and forthright way and she put herself into her games with the same enthusiasm and Danielle tends to criticize her games a lot, mostly structurally in her writing. But I would consider you and the audience to think about Mule via only what we know about Danielle as a person. Mule is largely a resource management game with a currency and a trading system oh. not unlike Danielle's previous works, Wheeler Dealers and Cartels and Cutthroats. She's clearly interested in the idea of a top-down currency management game, and Mule is her third iteration. You can see that pull towards the systemic in her other games. Mule isn't the first resource management game she made, but it is the good one. I just don't think you can hide your passions. The Sega Genesis port of Mule, largely completed based on all anecdotal accounts that I've been able to find, was shelved because she refused to add weapons to the game. It's a non-violent game, and EA's argument was that adding weapons would bring the game up to date. She'd rather see it unpublished and walked away from the deal. It cost her her job and her career. It seems like she cared a little bit more about what her games meant. And how her players experience them. Than maybe her own professional success.
1: It's one of those things where it's like. When you think about it in the context of the way things are. You're like well yeah of course. Mm-hmm. Like like it's a Sega Genesis game that didn't have guns. <laughs> um, but then like. I grew up on Rise of the Triad. Just like the rest of y'all. Like, I, I love. I love my eyeballs flying past the screen. like, <laughs> Like all that stuff. But despite you know what my mom thinks of my game preferences like it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to have combat to be engaging no no and the idea that anything would get buried just because it, it doesn't have like weapons is is wild to me and especially a, basically a classic game at this
0: point in time that have been in circulation for 10 years i totally get the the idea of of wanting to include violence in your game because a violence is everywhere in our lives and b a lot of our art is about violence I love martial arts films, Mike, but those are movies about violence. Those are literally movies about just seeing people getting their ass kicked. Right. And it's kind of cool that someone is out there saying that stuff can still exist. Keep in mind, she made a billion war games. She has no problems with war as a concept, and she's fascinated by it. She's just saying this game doesn't need it. The idea, not that there's some real fundamental, like peaceful way to go throughout playing video games, but more than the idea that there are ideas, that games can support ideas bigger than violence.
1: I like that. Although, if you try and take the chain out of Road Rash, cancel it.
0: (laughs) If you try to take the chain out of Road Rash, my dad will show up at your house (laughs) on a motorcycle that he will be hurting
1: himself to drive. The most dangerous weapon in Road Rash 2 and the Sega Genesis is the Sega Genesis sound chip. (laughs)
0: Part of Mule's charm comes from its namesake, this bumbling resource extraction droid that you command as part of the game's resource management. You literally have to lead the horse to water. The mule can be caught up by environmental problems, it can ignore your orders sometimes, it can break and need replacement. I mean, these are all random mechanical elements in the game. But Daniel speaks to this premise being inspired by a science fiction author's work, Robert Heinlein specifically, in his novel Time Enough for Love. Now that's a quirky inspiration because Heinlein has like 70 million better known works. But then you look in Danielle's dating profile and her personal reading list, which are available in her archives, and you can see that she is a huge dedicated reader of science fiction and science nonfiction. Heinlein, Le Guin, E.O. Wilson, Starhawk. She knew this stuff like the back of her hand. She loves science fiction. And in my mind, her most successful game was a science fiction game because of that. The humans are here, but they're squabbling over resources. The alien world is really big and it's harsh to wrangle. The society relies upon robots, but they aren't as reliable as they should be. That's science fiction 101, right? Weird comparison point here. The Power Rangers Game Gear game you were talking to me about? Yeah. One of the reasons you were telling me why that game fascinated you is because it was timed and structured like a TV show. Yeah, yeah. It stood out because it knew the thing a little better. It spoke the language a little better. I think it's kind of a similar idea.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Danielle saw games as an expression of her personal relationships. So she made games about her personal relationships, good and bad. The same family that later disowned her contributed to her playtesting for years. And so she didn't really have the luxury of untangling her personal life from her professional life. A lot of trans folks don't. That pain never stopped Danielle from preaching the importance of social relations in games. Mule is a good game by itself, but it's a great game with three other people. And it turns out, if you really put yourself and your beliefs into your art, you can take a piece of personal family dysfunction and radically transform it into something that brings people together. That's why I wanted to celebrate her work instead of just talk about all of the indignities that she suffered. She really didn't want to be defined by those things. In closing, I'd like to co-opt her most famous quote, No one on their deathbed ever said, I wish I had spent more time alone with my computer. I'm also going to include my favorite part of that quote, which is often lopped off at the end. Duh, it's the people. Button's work shows the importance of considering games as a tool of communication between people, on a literal level, by building games that create and reinforce social relationships, and on a more abstract level, by putting so much of herself into the world through her games and her writing. Danielle cuts a unique figure in history being an open and proud trans woman game developer in a time and profession that didn't often make room for gender nonconforming people. It's almost 30 years gone, and we're still stuck fighting these same fights. Games haven't grown out of these times or industries either, but Danielle showed us a way we might be able to do so together. I gotta get a gavel. Do you have a gavel?
1: I mean, I've got a, I've got a meat tenderizer. What, what do judges do?
0: They just hit something expensive with it? Yeah. Okay, so Mike's gonna hit something expensive with his hammer.
1: I'm going to crash a bottle of champagne on my computer monitor.
0: Let it be known. We hereby induct Danielle Buntonberry as our first ever Game Crimes Hero of Games. Rusted in power, Danielle. And now, let us game in her memory. Game reviews, game reviews, game reviews. We always review games on this show, and if you want to see us playing some of these games, you should definitely go on over to our Twitch channel. We'll definitely be putting some new content up there soon. But before I get to promoting myself some more, believe me, it's coming. We want to talk about a few of Danny's games that we actually played. In honor of Danny's work, Mike and I sat down with two of her best-known works, a port of Mule for modern Windows, and the remastered 1993 edition of Seven Cities of Gold. I've got some of Danny's quotes and thoughts here about these games that we can share while we talk. But first things first, let's get to the, the topic de jour, the conversation piece, Mule. Mm-hmm. So Mule was originally published in the early 80s, and its design has remained unchanged in this version we played called Planet Mule, which exists to facilitate online versions of Mule. Uh, all you need to play is a keyboard, and it is super super easy to set up and get going with multiple people. You and I only played against each other just to kind of feel the ground out. What were your kind of broad impressions?
1: It was it was really cool. I can see it getting really chaotic with a uh, with a larger group. There was definitely some things I had to pick up along the way, but I I don't think I had too much trouble doing that. You spanked um, the shit out of me. <laughs> well, I mean, not even in that, but just in like basic mechanics that like. I did read a guide, but, like, once, and I probably needed a few more times. The other thing is, like, your time, that doesn't help, right? Like, <laughs> you're
0: when you're sitting there trying to figure out those mechanics on the fly, there's, like, a clock ticking down.
1: It took me a long time to realize that when we were buying plots of land, we weren't taking turns, and that either one of us could select a plot of land at any time. Yes. <laughs> uh so I was, just, I was just like i was like well uh, i go first and now it's your turn and <laughs> and then one of the times you chose one that i was like about to choose i was like what the hell
0: <laughs> kind of reminds me like uh, again earlier of like buying a new board game where like the first time you play it you don't actually enjoy it it's like the second or third time where you really kind of get it going we played through a round in what 45 minutes mm-hmm. that wasn't too bad mm-hmm. and, I, and a four-player game usually goes like an hour and some change
1: should we do like a brief overview of like I know we've kind of talked about it, but not really uh, the loop. Please do, yeah, yeah. There's a single colony, and there are um, there's uh, basically plots of land around that colony that have different resources that are randomized with like different le- different values of that resource. You know, different plots of lands are better are better at gathering different resources on them. Basically, there's a a little cursor that just kind of goes along the rows, and you hit the button when it gets to one that you want, mm-hmm. and then you you have it. Um, and you build then you take turns each person has time to go build on their plot of land purchase various resources gamble get a get a drink at the bar and and then at the end there's a whole bidding cycle i guess is for various resources that some people might have more of that other people need etc
0: yeah and you have quotas to fill so if you don't have x of a certain resource you're very severely punished right which means that the wheeling and dealing and the auctioning is just as important as selecting your land or, you know, picking the right kind
1: of land to build up. And maybe as a commentary on human nature, <laughs> my immediate instinct was to just go for the crushing defeat and be the richest person there. <laughs> and it turns out at the end of the game, you're, you're also there's also a cooperative goal. Yes. That I <laughs> I never considered that there would be a cooperative goal. I was just like, I have to win at all costs. <laughs> I <laughs> I need all the power, all the food, all the rocks. I don't even know what the rocks do, but I want them.
0: <laughs> it's pretty great, too, because like the group goals are presented very broadly, right? It's like, oh, you did well enough or no, you didn't do well enough. But then it absolutely does show you those like bar graph charts. So you can go, oh, no, I am absolutely three pieces of rock better than you, my friend. <laughs> it's, it's really fun because the cooperative element is always going to be there, but it never takes away from the game's. I mean, I keep saying cut through. There's no better word for it. This game is brutal. You stab each other in the back constantly and without violence whatsoever. I mean, you're, I'm swearing at Mike for him taking too many rocks. <laughs> Which sounds very Catan and very boring, but this game is very fast paced. Like I said, there's it's a,
1: extremely fast paced.
0: There's a clock going on the entire time and you, there's always going to be more to do than you will have time to do. So it's, it really is a, a decision making there are limited decisions and your decisions are somewhat randomized but there's a really really nice balance of the player having some say in what happens during the game but not being able to like pull out in front of everybody and just
1: ruin the experience for everyone yeah and then you really have to know because of that because of that limited time frame you really have to know what you're going to do before your turn starts almost if yes. you want to make the most of it
0: yes I know I keep saying board game, and this was actually made into a board game a few years back, but it does have a board game element where multiple playthroughs really do kind of reveal strategy, but strategy has a hell of a lot more to do with personal reactions, the circumstance at the time. Oh shit, I lost all of this currency because of a random pirate attack. Now what am I going to (laughs) do? That's really what defines playing this game well. You have to be able to be intuitive. I'm going to read Danny's quote here about Mule. This is a game that taught me the value of playtesting, where you watch and talk to real people about the game while it's under development. After all, games are a form of communication that can only be confirmed by checking whether it works against an audience. I'm still amazed at how well-loved it is. There are a number of websites devoted to it, and I'm hopeful I can find a way to bring it to life again, possibly on the internet. Do you want to move on to Seven Cities? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Now we're going to talk about Seven Cities of Gold. Although Mule was not her most successful game at the time, it later became the work that defined her. In the 80s, though, the work that defined Ozark and Danielle was a work called Seven Cities of Gold, a game designed for a very interesting premise. What if you were a conquistador of the worst type? And what does it mean to be a conquistador? What does it mean to need to go to a foreign land... What does it mean to interact with natives you can't speak with? What does it mean to have to extract gold at all costs? Mike and I played the upgraded 1993 version, which is available on good old games. The biggest impression that you and I walked away with from our experience was uh, it's really fucking uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a way that it's like, I think if you like would ask just if you did just like kind of like a. A word on the street kind of like just survey people about what like the purpose of video games is like you'd hear a lot of people say that they're to be they're it's they're supposed to be fun mm-hmm. and like I don't think that this game was designed to be fun <laughs> like and and I don't I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily I thought no. about this quite a bit after playing it and I was like It's it's played to me like a historical commentary where it's like, here's like a a way that I can like, get more resources or whatever. But I don't feel good doing it. No, no, no. And Um, I wish that I hadn't after I did it.
0: Clearly the I wanted to say the horse in the room, but that is not the phrase.
1: (laughs) The dead horse
0: in the room. The horse in the room the the thing that we're glossing over and not talking about is the discomfort of the conquistadors historical record itself of course uh, murder and rape and violence and genocide and this game presents those things not explicitly this is not a, a 1983 atari game where you get to see a culture wiped out
1: or something like that yeah
0: but what you do is mimic the play between exploring a dangerous map of wilderness, right? Like animals and unforeseen obstacles and creating a relationship with the indigenous people that live there. I think that is interesting, but like you were saying, it's not fun, right? Like you're not going to yeah. enjoy seven cities of gold for a long time ago. Hell yeah. I love that. I just keep bringing Folks, just piles and piles and piles of guns because I need to extract gold from them later. It's so weird. It's so gross to find that in a, in a game that's old. I think you can find a, some of that stuff maybe more in like the indie game scene, confronting you with uncomfortable ideas, confronting you with uncomfortable experiences. It doesn't really show off what she's best at. You know, her, her real talents as a designer. There's no multiplayer here whatsoever. The interactions with the indigenous folks in the game, they don't really reflect any sort of conversation or anything, right? And in fact, that's a big central part of the game is that you can't speak the same language. I do think there are parts of this game to like. The fact that the game is not a kill-em-all sort of RTS game, I think it gives it some points right there. But the other thing that I would give it a point to, I, I love the randomization of the maps. I think the detail that goes into all the different, like, geographic structures, the way the islands are supposed to be set up, coasts versus inland. I mean, those are the kind of details I'm looking for in a game like this. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to read a Danny quote here and see what you think about this, because I think this is very insightful in the game. It was published in 1984 by Electronic Arts, and it was the game Trip Hawkins coined the term edutainment to describe on the press tour. Unlike most strategy adventure games, which load the player with numerous economic and logistical decisions, Seven Cities of Gold only used four commodities to model the constraints facing the Conquistadors. Those four commodities are men, food, goods, and gold. I like the way that I was able to reflect the unique interactions between natives and Conquistadors when they shared neither a language nor cultural values in common. The fact that our new world was randomly generated, and so large that it required disk caching and overlays, made exploring a challenge fraught with peril and surprises. It sufficiently captured the sense of panic that comes from being lost in the wilderness and running out of supplies, as well as the joy of rescue, which is something I experienced once while backpacking and wanted to make a touchstone of this design. So as always, you look into her biography, and this is a game really about being lost, lost in the wilderness. But of course, it's not the wilderness. It's just you're alone.
1: (laughs) And it is a very lonely game. Yeah, I think I experienced that, like, uh, that sense of being alone when I died five (laughs) feet from my boat because I forgot to bring a sandwich. (laughs) Felt really alone.
0: What about when you walk into a uh, village
1: of indigenous folks? You just get the sensation that you shouldn't be there. It gives you this really weird, like, uh, dynamic in that in order to attack something, like, you just kind of walk into it. Mm -hmm. And they surround you when you enter when you enter a camp mm-hmm. uh and you just like it, it's a, it's this real like uncomfortable thing where it's like like you don't know what to do and you're just standing there awkwardly like waiting for an opening to leave
0: yes <laughs> uh <laughs> like literally sometimes literally waiting for a, like a, a a a small space in the crowd to park because it is very easy to accidentally bump into someone right which, of course, initiates combat. It's a very clever abstraction of how language works and definitely the relationship in that conquistor history. But I don't know, like the thing that it keeps coming back to me is I I didn't have fun playing it. I didn't. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not all for the Assassin's Creed style of history, which is just seems to be like eat 12 books and then whatever you vomit up is a story.
1: <laughs> it's hey, one of the- to- Eat books to restore your health. <laughs>
0: But it does. It does seem to me like whatever goal or purpose this game mm-hmm. served has come and gone. Mm-hmm. This is not be how I would teach anyone about Conky stores. <laughs> no. no, no, I don't think so. I don't think you get enough information from this to really kind of link you into the actual violence and horror
1: that happened there.
0: So it does kind of leave itself as kind of like a weird, stale piece of history.
1: I mean, I I'd like to think that that uncomfortable feeling is something that like that this game communicates well mm-hmm. um and i think it does but only if you approach it from like an analytical yeah um, like if you play you play it like with an anal- your analytical hat on mm-hmm. because man I, I hate to say it but you give me if you give 11 year old me this game mm-hmm. he is not he's not having the same experience yeah that's a good way to put it
0: so let's do the verdict mike would you recommend that people play mule
1: yeah absolutely get mm. some friends together play mule mm-hmm. geekly con we should probably do a mule yeah y'all were just gonna sit around and play Catan anyway play something different
0: <laughs> play something that like uh i don't know involves cool robots and not just sheep i can get a sheep yeah of course i would Seriously. say you have to play mule Mule's a great game uh i would put it on a list of canonical works oh it hurts to say but it does, it does deserve to be in that upper echelon of games. It's great today, and you can't say that about many 30-year-old movies, 40-year-old, you know, 40-year-old TV shows, etc. Seven cities of gold, on the other hand, Mike.
1: <laughs> no, fucking don't worry about it. <laughs> like, like, y'all know Conquistadors are bad. Don't, mm-hmm. You don't have to do it.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, you'll get a similar experience from reading a Wikipedia article. Yeah. Uh, if, if you read the correct ones, look up Cabeza de Vaca. It's one of those things where, like, I, I do think it's an interesting historical artifact. It's definitely more interesting than your average Atari game.
1: I don't know. Have you ever played Night Driver?
0: It really emulates the experience of driving at night. It puts you in that headspace.
1: I will say the reason I'm the reason I, I'm not I'm not giving Seven Cities a goal to pass is because you can't play it with a paddle controller. I would
0: say if you do have to play a version of this, probably go to the Atari one. It runs a little faster. There's a little fewer features. But the graphics in that, that updated one are pretty dang nice. Either way, if you do feel yourself intrigued by games that are challenging, difficult, in 8.84. Yeah, obtuse (laughs) is a very good way to put it. This game will reward you. You know, it's not an empty void. All right! That is episode four of Game Crimes, Heroes of Games, the Danielle Berry Induction. Thank you for joining us for memorializing an influential game developer, and also for doing a little less of a gag-heavy episode.
1: (laughs) <laughs> oh shit shit I, I there was one i forgot mm. uh, danielle it's your cousin marvin <laughs> <laughs> you know that new game you've been looking for
0: listen to this my sci-fi replay podcast called weird adventures in space you can find that over on the shu podcast network you can also jump us over on our twitch stream mike do you have anything you need to plug
1: uh yeah as always you can find me on the the greetings adventures podcast uh you can find me on youtube Oh, uh, oh, on the re- review hole uh, where we <laughs> just com- completed a scathing review of Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Um, and it, it, I, you know, I hesitate to call it a, a review. It's an expose. Yes. Uh, now, please
0: watch. Mike's work exposing the Disney Corporation is the sort of daring political thinking why I asked him to be here on the show with me. And he really takes it to the House of Mouse. You really beat up Mickey Mouse. You really dunk his head in the toilet. How do you apply
1: for a Pulitzer?
0: Now, if you've been missing out on our hyper nerdy silicon brain tech talk, maybe next episode will be a little bit more up your alley. We're going to be exploring some weird territory here, the world of fan translations. Till then, go home, play Mule, have a good night. Rest in power, Danielle.